Amen. Amen. Second Samuel chapter 12 tonight, as we continue our series looking at David, the model of a growing leader. When we started this series out many weeks ago, we said that the reason we wanted to look at the life of David through the lens of leadership is because God wants all of us to be leaders. He created us to be leaders. Adam and Eve were to have dominion in the Garden of Eden. That's the way God meant for it to be, intended for it to be. And one day, the Bible says that we will rule and reign with Christ. So He creates us to be leaders. He wants us to step up and be the leaders that He made for us to be. And so we're learning what that looks like in our life. And in the first 10 chapters of 2 Samuel, we saw David's triumphs. That for the most part, David is is walking with the Lord. He's inquiring of God before he does something and steps out to do something. He's the model of a growing leader. But we also saw last week that when we saw David's tremendous sins and, and failures and fall in 2 Samuel 11, his adultery with Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah, and all these other lives that were devastated and death and all that that came from David's sins, we saw that obviously David's triumphs went to David's troubles. And yet we saw that David's trouble didn't come overnight. That it was a process that had started somewhere back in time where his spiritual life began to erode. As we've been saying throughout this study, our lives, including our spiritual lives, are never static. We're either moving forward with God or we're moving backward. And somewhere along the line, instead of David continuing to move forward and make progress with God, his spiritual life began to slip. And he began to neglect the things that he knew he should be doing every day in order to keep himself in a good place with God, to build up his spiritual strength and stamina. And it was because of that in his life that he opened himself up to the sins that we talked about last week in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now where we left it, obviously, was that there was still a lot of fallout immediately from what David did, but in David's mind, he thinks he's got away with it. In fact, there's about nine to ten months now between the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 where David is probably feeling like, you know what? Maybe nobody will find out what I did. But see, God loves us, his children, too much to leave us in that kind of a condition. That's what we need to realize. God understands the destructive nature of sin and of a lack of confession and a lack of taking personal responsibility for things. And he'll only let that go. And eventually he will send something or someone into our life to make sure that that we come clean with him about what we've done so that we can move on and move forward. Because God's all about moving us forward. And even though I'm getting way ahead of myself, we even see here that even after David's unbelievable failure, God still had a future for David. Failure is never final with God. He just wants his children to come clean with what they've done, accept his forgiveness, and move on with letting him continue to use them. So you'll notice in chapter 12 then, verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David. 
We've talked about how in the last couple of chapters, we saw David sending people everywhere. He sent that group of people to go get Bathsheba and take her and bring her to him. And he, he sent Uriah out with his own sort of death orders back to Joab to put him on the front lines. And he was sending people here and all of that. Now God is sending Nathan into David's life because he loves him. And he wants David to finally be confronted with what he has done. I want to talk for a moment about Nathan. Because we can also learn some things about leadership from obviously others in these passages just besides David. There may be a time as a leader where God wants you to confront somebody about something. There may be a time as a leader where you have to have a hard conversation with somebody about something. But just make sure in that moment that you're not going on your own initiative. That you're being sent by the Lord to do that. In other words, if God wants you to go and, and tell somebody what they need to hear, maybe not what they want to hear, great. But make sure you're going with the Lord's blessing, if you will. Not just because you think that this should be taken care of and that this person should be confronted and dealt with. Make sure you're going as the Lord sends you. Because one thing that the Lord is going to look at when he sends people to do something like this is, is their heart in the right place. In other words, Nathan's heart needed to be in the right place. He couldn't come at David from a self-righteous Hey, what's wrong with you, you stooge? I got my spiritual act together. How comes you're, you know, messing up your life? Remember the Bible says, Paul says in the book of Galatians, when he talks about even brothers and sisters sometimes having to confront each other, to go in the spirit of gentleness and meekness, considering ourselves that we would be maybe there except it weren't for the grace of God. And so we've got to make sure, and God may have needed to take some time to get Nathan in the right, proper place because Nathan was actually coming to David a broken man. He took no pleasure in confronting David about this. He was as broken about it as anybody was because he saw the pain that David was in, the pain that all this was causing David and others. God, I think, had revealed this to him. And so Nathan is sent by God to David. But sometimes it's necessary. Remember what the Bible says in the book of Proverbs? Faithful are the what of a friend? The wounds of a friend. But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Sometimes the best thing a friend can do, if they're really a friend, is to tell their friend what they need to hear, not what they always want to hear. That's a real friend. And so Nathan was not just being the prophet of God, an instrument of God. He was really being a friend to David because as long as David was not coming clean with his sin, not willing to say, I was wrong, I've sinned against the Lord, I take personal responsibility, there was no way David or really the kingdom of Israel at this point could move forward with the blessing of God. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to David, Nathan said, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. 
And I want you to notice the story now that Nathan gives to David is a story that Nathan knew would resonate with David. Because David was a shepherd. He had a background as a shepherd. And so the other thing I want you to notice is not only did Nathan go to David because God sent him, not only did Nathan, was Nathan the right person to go because he had the proper heart attitude to deal with David in this situation, but Nathan had also spent some time preparing and praying before he went because he thought through what he was going to say when he got there. That's important for us. To make sure, especially in those times that we might have to have a difficult conversation with somebody, that we've also spent time in prayer preparing our words, preparing what we know God wants us to say, and what will resonate with the person that we need to talk to. So there were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing except for a little lamb he had acquired. He raised it. It grew up alongside of him and his children. It was used to, it used to eat his food, drink from his cup, sleep in his arms. It was just like a daughter to him. When a traveler arrived at the rich man's home, he did not want to use one of his own sheep or cattle to feed the traveler who had come to visit him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and cooked it for the man who had come to visit him. Now, I also think that what Nathan is doing is setting David up with something that David would have been used to as the king. Because one of the responsibilities of the king would have been sometimes to judge in matters of dispute. And so David may have thought that this was a real situation that Nathan was coming to him for, for, in a sense, kingly advice and counsel is, what should we do with this situation? And notice David became very angry at this man. Literally in the Hebrew, it's to breathe hard, to burn, to be hot. It's literally that picture of someone's nostrils flaring. Not that we've ever seen anybody like that or we've been like that ourselves, but that was David. He was incensed. This didn't just upset him. This really upset him. Because he never forgot what it was like to be the shepherd who was out there tending his sheep when God tapped Samuel to go and anoint him as the future king of Israel. He always had a soft spot for sheep and shepherds, and Nathan knew that. He said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Wow. Not really. The man who did this deserved to be punished. He deserved to be judged for what he did. But when God laid down the laws for how the Israelites were to govern, death was not the judgment for stealing someone else's sheep. Death was the judgment of God for those who committed murder and adultery. And isn't it interesting that David, at this point so far, is very much ignoring and insensitive to his own great sins of adultery and murder, and yet is flying off the handle at someone who stole a sheep. For this reason. Not only because this principle is biblical, because I have seen it in my own life, and I've seen it in the lives of other Christians. 
When you and I are in a bad place with God, insensitive or ignoring our own sins that need to be dealt with, we become very much hypercritical of other people over even lesser things. We see that with David. Instead of David being willing to deal with the great things that he has done, he becomes way over the top in reacting to the sin of somebody else. We have to be careful that we make sure that you and I are keeping short accounts with God. Because if we don't keep short accounts with God and confess our sins and own up and just take personal responsibility, we know God will forgive us. Why try to hide and conceal and all that? Because we can't hide it from God anyway. God knows. God just says, simply come to me and come clean and I'll forgive you and let's move on. But until we're willing to do that and we continue to cover and conceal, the Bible says we will not prosper. And so if we want to prosper as God's people and be blessed, we need to confess. And we not only need to confess so that we stay in a good place with God, but again, if we don't do that, what ends up building up in our lives is we begin to look at other people and what they do in a very hypercritical way. And that's exactly what David was doing here. So in verse 6, because he committed this cold-hearted crime... He must pay for the lamb four times over. David even recognized that there needs to be some restitution here, not just judgment. By the way, the words cold-hearted crime in my translation there in verse 6 in the Hebrew means to have no pity, no compassion, pretty much ruthless. The guy who did this was, was ruthless. No compassion. And, and isn't it interesting because... Up through chapter 10 of 2 Samuel, we've seen that one of the great things about David was that he was a man of compassion. When he saw something or someone hurting, he was right there. But because of sin, he's now sort of become insensitive. We saw that last week. People were dying all around him because of his sin. He's like, ah, that's what happens in battle. He's all of a sudden become very uncompassionate. And yet he's accusing the man who stole the lamb from the poor man for the same thing. Nathan said to David some of the most probably powerful words in the Bible. You are that man. Wow. Now think about this too. Nathan is saying this to the king of Israel. He's not just saying this to a friend. He's not just saying this to a family member. He's saying this to the most powerful man in the land. So obviously he needed to be sure that he was being sent from the Lord. I'm sure he probably had a lot of, are you sure, God, you want me to be the one to go? Can't you send somebody else? Why do I have to be the one to go and confront? We've all been there where... God asks us to do something, and we're like, could you get somebody else for that one, God? I, I don't want that assignment. A lot of times in our life, and in fact, most of the times in our life, we don't get to choose our own assignments. If, if we're God's servants and we're surrendered to Him, 
We're supposed to be willing to come before God and say, God, hey, whatever you want for me, I'll do. And if God says, I want you to do this, we should say, okay, God, I'll do it. And so even though Nathan may have, we don't know if Nathan protested being the one to go confront David, but I know this, at the end of the day, Nathan did what God wanted him to do. And then he goes on to say, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. Notice how many times God uses the personal pronoun I here through Nathan the prophet to David. I chose you to be king over Israel. And I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house. Put your master's wives into your arms. I also gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all that somehow seems insignificant, the word in the Hebrew means a few, a little, to be diminished. God says, I would have given you so much more as well. In other words, I would have added even increased to what I've already done. And so notice what God is saying here. Really important principle. God is saying to David that his sin was an expression of ingratitude. It wasn't about sex or lust or murder. God got to the heart of the issue. And God was saying to David, here's where, here's where your heart is wrong. All those other things were symptoms, but here's where your heart is wrong. After all I did for you, you became unthankful. You got used to being the king and having all these blessings and being in this position. And you forgot where you came from and you became very complacent and comfortable. And you stopped being thankful. And it's out of that heart of ingratitude and unthankfulness that you got to the point you did. Again, we all can take note of that. We've got to be very careful no matter where we are as a believer in Jesus Christ that we're always thankful. No wonder the Bible is just filled Old Testament and New with reminders about being thankful. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. I mean, over and over again, be thankful. Be, express gratitude to God. Because God understands, and we need to understand, that a lot of times the root of our sin, the root of why we do what we do or don't do what we should do, is because we've lost that sense of gratitude and thankfulness to God for all that he's done for us up to that point. And then he goes on to say in verse 9 through the prophet Nathan, why have you shown contempt for the word of the Lord by doing evil in my sight? The word contempt here means to despise, to disdain, to consider worthless. Literally in the Hebrew, to have no weight. In other words, if something carries weight, as we even say in English today, that means that it influences, it, it impresses me. And what God is basically saying is, my, no, my word no longer carried weight with you. That's not a good place to be. We always need to remain in a place where we're sensitive to what God says and where what God says carries the most weight weight with us.
We value and consider of great worth the Word of God. That's why the Old Testament is filled with, again, passages why it says that as followers of God, we should consider the Word of God as, as gold, as, as more precious than gold, as precious rubies and stones and treasure and all of that. Because that's how we should value it. That's the worth that it should be. It is the Word of God. And therefore, it should carry lots of authority, all authority and weight in our lives. But be, when, it, when it starts to be diminished, when the Word of God no longer is elevated in our lives, in the lives of our churches as it should be, you know what the result's going to be? Sloppy Christian living. Can I say? That's why at least we're going to strive at this church to always elevate and keep front and center the Word of God. Because at least that gives us a chance to be challenged continually to live as we should and to be encouraged to live as we should. But the Word of God is becoming less and less important in people's lives, in the life of the church today. It's taking on less and less of a role. And then we wonder as we look at the church, why the church lacks power and why the church is not really making an impact and why so many Christians are struggling and stuck in sin and, and are seeing no victory in their lives. Maybe it's because our view of the Word of God has diminished. And so God says through Nathan, why have you shown contempt for the word of the Lord by doing evil in my sight? By the way, the word evil means to cause hurt, pain, injury. And David's sin certainly did that. And then in my sight, literally in the Hebrew, is my eye. In other words, God is saying, you realize, David, I saw everything you've done. We may fool other human beings. Other human beings may not know what we're doing or what we're thinking, but God knows. We cannot hide it from God. The writer of Hebrews says, There is not a creature that is hidden in God's sight, but everything is open and laid bare before God. And then he goes on to say, You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife as your own. You have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites, so now the sword will never depart from your house. Wow. Consequences. We'll get to that in a moment. And then notice he goes on to say, you have despised me, regarded with contempt, disdained me by taking the wife of Uriah the Hittite as your own. In other words, in God's eyes, Bathsheba was never David's wife up to this point. It was Uriah's wife. It wasn't yours. You, you, you stole her from Uriah. And notice that God says, not only have you despised my word and, and shown contempt for the word, you've despised me because to despise the word of God is to despise God. God looks at them as being equal. This is what the Lord says, verse 11. I am about to bring disaster on you from inside your own household. And that's exactly what would happen. We're not going to take time through our study. We're going to jump to the end of 2 Samuel next week and wrap this up. But 
in chapters 13 through 22, basically, it's all about how these children that were born to all these wives that David had that he should have never had, and, and even all this, that his household and his children, and, and they became such a source of heartache and pain to David. They killed each other, they raped each other, they hurt each other. It, it was awful what David's household went through. Right before your own eyes, I will take your wives and hand them over to your companion, literally your friend, your associate. He will have sexual relations with your wives in broad daylight. Although you have acted in secret, literally covering, hiding, concealing, I will do this thing before all Israel and in broad daylight. God was saying, I'm laying it all out, David. There it is. You can't you can't hide from it anymore. Then David exclaimed to Nathan, verse 13, really important. I have sinned against the Lord. <laughs> Finally. And here's the thing. David didn't say, I committed an indiscretion. I made a mistake. No, he said, I have sinned. Sin is a word that is becoming extinct in our vocabulary today in the world. Even amongst Christians. We don't want to use the word sin. Well, the Bible does. God does. And God says as his followers, when we sin, we need to say, I sinned. I missed the mark is literally what it means. And that's exactly what David said. Very interestingly, though, too, if you study this word sin, if you go back a little ways to how this word came to be, very interestingly, it also has the meaning of to lose oneself. Because that's exactly what happens when we sin. See, that's why God hates sin. Because God knows that when we sin, it's actually self-destructive. It actually hurts us. That, that, that's why God is not a killjoy. The things He tells us we should be doing and the things He tells us we should avoid in the Bible is only for our own good, for our best interest. Because God knows sin will destroy people. It will ruin us. It will cause injury. It will cause pain. And not just to us, but to all those around us. No one sins in a vacuum. One of the deceitfulness deceitful things about sin is sin and our flesh will tell us if we do this if it's it'll just affect me it's not going to affect anybody else wrong no one sins in a vacuum anytime you and i sin it not only affects us it affects others as well and david is now painfully coming to grips with that and then notice david said i've sinned against the lord did David sin against Bathsheba? Yes. Did David sin against Uriah? Yes. But David, like us, have to realize that primarily we sinned against God. We hurt God. And David said, that's what I've done. But notice the next part. Nathan said to David, yes, and because you've now confessed, 
the Lord has forgiven your sin. Wow. What a God. Literally, the word forgiven means to pick up and carry away. That's literally what it means. Or, it's also the word that's used in the Old Testament for Passover. God has passed over. Just as He did the night that Moses and Aaron and Joshua put the blood on the doorpost of the Israelites before they left Egypt when the death angel came through, He passed over because of the application of the blood so that judgment never came upon them? That's exactly the same concept here. God is saying, I will not judge your sin. I will not hold this sin against you. Because why? David deserved to die because of this. And Nathan's going to tell him, you're you're not going to die. God has forgiven. You are not going to die. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to get to it real quick. No wonder David wrote this in the Psalms. Psalm 32, verse 1. How blessed is the one whose rebellious acts are forgiven, whose sin is pardoned. How blessed is the one whose wrongdoing the Lord has, does not punish, in whose spirit there is no deceit. On and on. Psalm 51. So many Psalms he wrote out of this experience. Nonetheless, verse 14, because you have treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son who has been born to you will certainly die. One of the things I have to remind myself of and I remind other Christians of is there are consequences to forgiven sin. An example I would use in our modern day is if I as a Christian go out and commit a crime. Say I steal something. I can ask God to forgive me of that sin. But that doesn't mean I might not sit in jail or pay a fine because of what I have done. There are still consequences. God can forgive, but many times God allows the consequences to instruct us. He wants us sometimes, not all the times, because sometimes in His grace He will remove the consequences as well as forgive, but sometimes He wants us to feel the pain to try to build into our lives both a prevention and a motivation to never let that same mistake ever happen again. And David never did. He never made that mistake. He never sinned in that way for the rest of his life. So Nathan went to his home, verse 15. And I'm sure when Nathan got home, he was probably like, he probably just collapsed. He was done. I'm sure he was emotionally Drain, Because you and I have all been there when we've had to deal with a tough situation 
and where it was so emotionally draining that it was as if we would have run a marathon. We were that exhausted. We didn't really do anything physically, but we were so emotionally invested and engaged in what we did. We were just absolutely spent. I'm sure that was Nathan when he got home. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and the child became very ill. Now David prayed to God for the child and fasted. Even though David heard that the child was going to die, I think because David had such a relationship with God, he says, it can't hurt. Can't hurt to pray. Maybe God will in his grace, not because I deserve it, because I don't deserve any favors from God. David knew it was on the basis of grace, but he was going to at least ask. Can I say that's an important principle for us to remember? Christians have come up to me and said, hey, I don't really know what God's will is in this situation, but is it okay to pray this way? And I'm like, yeah. As long as you leave the final say to God. Pray for that to happen. But also know, like Paul, that when Paul went to God and said, God, take this thorn away, that in God's mind it was Better for Paul spiritually to keep the thorn that Paul had to say, okay, you know best, God, so I'll leave the final decision with you. That's what David was doing. I'm going to at least ask. Nothing wrong with that. So David prayed to God for the child and fasted. He would even go and spend the night lying on the ground. The elders of his house stood over him and tried to lift him from the ground, but he was unwilling and refused to eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. But the servants of David were afraid to inform him that the child had died, for they said, while the child was still alive, he would not listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He will do himself harm. They didn't know how he was going to react. When David saw that his servants were whispering to one another, he realized that the child was dead. So David asked his servants, is the child dead? They replied, yes, he's dead. So David got up from the ground, bathed, put on oil, changed his clothes, went to the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went, entered his palace, requested food be brought to him, and he ate. This shows the heart of David. This shows the heart of David. He's being broken by the Lord, but he's becoming who he was again. Because he understands God is always worthy of worship regardless of the circumstances. See, a lot of people today, their worship of God, if you will, is based on how things are going in their life. Things are going good, man, you know. But we need to be willing to worship God because He's worthy of worship at all times, whether things are going good or not. His servant said to him, What is this you've done? Verse 21. While the child was still alive, you fasted and wept. And once the child was dead, you got up and ate food. It doesn't make sense. David replied, Well, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept because I thought perhaps the Lord will show pity. Be gracious, have mercy, show favor. Again, not because I deserved it, but it could, so that's what I did. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? In other words, I let the final result in God's hands. 
I have confidence that God always does what's best. If God chose to do this, then I trust Him. My heart rests with Him. Am I able to bring Him back? David says, can I change anything at this point? No. Before, things weren't, it wasn't decided yet, so that's why I acted the way I did. But now it's done, so release it, let it go. I can't do anything about it. And then David makes, I think, a very important statement. He says, I will go to him, but he can't return to me. I think, in studying this, that David is proclaiming that he will see his son one day. And I believe that too. I believe that children who die, I believe that they go to heaven. I believe that all aborted babies in history, they end up in heaven. And we can talk about that. That's not really what this message is about. But I think David here is expressing absolute confidence that he's going to see his son again in the future. Even though his son can't come back, because once someone dies, there isn't anything biblical about praying for the dead or thinking somehow that they can come back. It's done at that point. But we can eventually go to be with them. This verse and others that I base my belief on is certainly a comfort to me because many of you know my personal family story that I had a brother and sister who died before I was born. I never even met my brother and sister. My brother died when he was four. My sister died when she was two. And yet I believe that one day I'm going to see my brother and sister in heaven. You probably, based on Sunday's message, not only have maybe a child you're thinking of that's up there that you want to see, but obviously other family members and friends that have went on to be with Jesus. And you're looking forward to that time where we can all be reunited again. That's what David was expressing here. His servant said to him, or then, then so David Then verse 24, comforted his wife, Bathsheba. I want you to notice something. Notice before in the passage that God through the prophet Nathan referred to Bathsheba as Uriah's wife. Look at verse 15. The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born. Throughout the passage up to verse 24, God referred through Nathan about Bathsheba as not David's wife, but Uriah's wife. But now... That David has confessed. Now that God has forgiven. Now that sin has, in a sense, been judged. Now she's David's wife. And notice that now the word comfort here means to have compassion. And it's almost like now, through his brokenness and through him being willing to acknowledge his sin, he's become that compassionate person that he once was before sin got a hold of him. Because now he was, instead of just thinking about himself, he was thinking about Bathsheba. And he wanted to be and offer her consolation and compassion. He went to her, had marital relations with her. She gave birth to a son and David named him Solomon. Solomon's name means peace. 
It's very close to the Hebrew word shalom, where we get peace from. And the Bible says the Lord loved the child, not that the Lord doesn't love other children. This is a Hebrew expressing, saying that the Lord chose him. Very interestingly, out of all David's children that he had, through many different wives, God chose that his successor to the throne of Israel would be the child that David and Bathsheba bore. It it was as if God was saying, look, you made a terrible mistake, but now I recognize this relationship, I acknowledge this, in fact, I'm going to bless it. It's not Solomon's fault what happened. Let's move on. And so he sent word through Nathan the prophet that he should be named Jedidiah, which means beloved of Jehovah for the Lord's sake. It was if God wanted to say, it was like a stamp of God saying, okay, now this with Uriah and it's in the past. Let's move on. Let's turn the page. That's what some Christians have a hard time doing. They have a hard time. Not that God does. They have a hard time turning the page and moving on and accepting God's forgiveness for what they've done. God's forgiven. And and sometimes we use the phrase, I can't forgive myself. I, I don't like that phrase personally. Because I don't think it's so much forgiving ourselves as much as it is accepting God's forgiveness by faith. If God says, I'll forgive you, then as a Christian, a follower of Christ, we should believe what God says and accept His forgiveness. If we don't accept His forgiveness, it's a lack of faith on our part in His Word. He said He would do it. Let's accept that and believe it and trust in it. And then I love the way chapter 12 ends. Because it's almost like God at the end of this very painful season in David's life, chapters 11 and 12, wants us to know, again, failure is not final. It's not like God is going to sit David up on the shelf and he can never be used again and and there's no future for David and, and God's never going to bless David in any way or anything like that. Because the Bible says, Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal city, verse 26. So Joab sent messengers to David saying, I fought against Robin, have captured the water supply of the city. Now assemble the rest of the army and besiege the city and capture it. Seize the opportunity is literally what it means in the Hebrew. Otherwise, I will capture the city and it'll be named for me. And David could have sat there wallowing in pity and just saying, continuing to kick himself and going, I've done such a terrible thing. God could never use me. I could never have another victory in my life. I could never do anything. Nobody will ever follow me again. Nobody, you know, you know, the whole. But David accepted God's forgiveness and assembled all the army and went to Rabbah and fought against it and captured it. God still had plans for David. God still had a future for David. Did David do a terrible thing? Absolutely. Did he fall? Absolutely. But with God, God is the God of billions of chances, not just second chances. Because I don't know about you, maybe you only needed two from God. I've needed way more chances from God than just two. I've needed to come back to God many times in my life and say, God, I'm sorry I've made that mistake again. 
can't seem to get over the hump. God's like, okay, let's, let's do this again. Failure is never final with God. If I could leave you with one thing, it would be this. And I've said this before. Allow God to be the one to define your life. Don't you try to define it. Don't let others define it. Let God be the one to define your life. If you're alive, God's not through with you. If your heart's still beating, and you can breathe, and you can move, God's not through with you. God still has a future for you, no matter how badly you have failed. David is a great example of that. And so God wants us to use these passages of David's life as an encouragement and as a challenge to us. Because we also know that we see here that even though David had such a great relationship with God, when he began to walk away from God, he was also capable of awful things. And so is any Christian. If we start walking according to the flesh, as we've learned in the book of Romans, instead of according to the Spirit, there is nothing that a Christian couldn't do. And so that's why God encourages us to continue to walk in the Spirit and keep moving forward so that we don't have to experience the pain and the consequences of our own sin and then also see how other people's lives are negatively affected by what we did as well. That's what we learn from 2 Samuel chapter 12. Well, let's pray. God, thank you so much for, Lord, including the story of David in the Word of God. And one of the reasons, Lord, that we know that the Bible is your word and not man's word is because if this was, had originated with men, men would always put the best spin they could on their own situation. They would always try to portray themselves in the best light possible. But one of the reasons why we know that the Bible is the word of God is because when you lay out a situation... You give us, as has been said, the good, the bad, the ugly. You, you give it all to us. You don't hold anything back. And yet, Lord, in that we take such great encouragement because one of the things that we are reminded of in stories like this is that even in the yuck of life, even in situations where we've caused a mess or someone else has caused a mess, you don't turn your back and abandon us and, and basically say, you guys just figure it out. You get right in there with us and, and you do not forsake us to the situation we find ourselves in. At any point, all we have to do in whatever mess we find ourselves is just to humble ourselves and lift up our eyes to heaven and say, Lord Jesus, please help. And you'll be right there to help us. There is no situation that we could ever do. That there's nothing that we could ever do. No situation in life, Lord, that we could ever find ourselves in that's too yucky 
for you to get involved in. You are not a God that sits up there in heaven removed from the pain of what's going on here. You insert yourself and want to come right in and help and move us out and take us out of the miry clay, the, the places where we're stuck and get us out of that and get us moving again so that we can experience life at the highest level. And so God, even here tonight, if there's someone here tonight who finds themselves in an awful situation in life, a situation they would have never chosen, a situation they never thought they would find themselves in, God, give them encouragement and hope that can only come from you, that you will not abandon them in this situation, that you will be there every step of the way in this situation, and that you will see them through this situation. Because, Lord, you're a God who's not just there in the good times when everything's going well. You're there in the most difficult, challenging trials and tribulations that life can bring. You're there when our heart aches. You're there when the pain is unbearable. And God, we thank you for that. God, go with us as only you can. Take us all home safely tonight. Give us all a a good day tomorrow. Thank you, God, for the freedoms that at least we still enjoy in this country. We thank you for moving a group of people so many years ago to form this country and for the sacrifices that they made. Lord, help us to be thankful and appreciative for not only all that you've given us, but Lord, even for the blessing of living in this country and the freedoms that we still enjoy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thanks for being here tonight. Have a great week. We'll see you Sunday.